So let me ask you a question as we get started this morning. How many of you like to camp? How many of you good camping is Holiday Inn Express? Let me. All right, those of you that like to camp, let me ask you this, okay? What do you like about camping? Roughing it. You're not really selling it there. What do you like? Building a fire, right? S'mores. What's that? The outdoors? Getting away? Family time, right? Nature. Okay, those of you that um, don't like camping, why do you not like it? But, well, did y'all hear that? Like 30 people all of a sudden. All right, so let's go one at a time. Bugs. It's outside. All right. What's that? No flat iron. It's hard to get that hair just right. Right. Here's what I want you to ask, okay? So when you think of camping, do you think luxury or simplicity? When you think of camping, do you think expensive? Now, normal camping. I mean, there are some, you know, people that go crazy. Normal camping. Expensive or cheap? Right? Here's what I want to talk about today. And this is kind of an interesting thing to me. That in Exodus chapter 25, there's this passage of Scripture where God talks about camping. It starts in verse 1. It's going to be on the screen if you don't have uh, a Bible with you today. If you do, feel free to open up. We're going to kind of be camped out. That was unintentional, but it worked. By the way, I do give some people here a hard time. Do you know that one of the most popular camping destinations for people of our church is Defeated Creek? Man, who wants to go on vacation to Defeated Creek? Right? I mean, I'd say, why don't you just go to Persecution Cove? It'll be all good. Exodus 25. Somebody told me, what's the town right next to Defeated Creek? Difficult. That's what it is, right? There was a church when we, we would drive to see Susan's family up in Kentucky. We would always pass this church that was Hard Money Baptist Church. I think the name of the community is Hard Money. There are a lot of Hard Money Baptist churches. not called that, all right? Exodus chapter 25, starting in verse 1. This says, the Lord spoke to Moses. Tell the Israelites to take an offering for me. You are to take my offering from everyone whose heart stirs him to give. From everyone that's willing to give. This is the offering you are to receive for them. Gold, silver, bronze. Sounds pretty normal, right? Blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. Fine linen, goat hair. Ram skins dyed red. Anybody brought that lately? Manatee skins. I think you'd get arrested if you brought that today. It goes on. Acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing, oil for the fragrant incense, onyx along with other gemstones for mounting on the ephod and the breastpiece. Then it says this. They are to make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. They're going to make a sanctuary for me so I may dwell among them. Now, let me ask you, okay? This is in Exodus chapter 25. Does anybody know what he's about to tell them to build? The tabernacle, right? 
What is the tabernacle? What was it? I mean, physically, what was it? It was a tent. Now, why would God tell His people to build a tent for worship? So it could move, right? They were still in the wilderness. They were moving around. And here's what I want you to see real quickly before we kind of... We're going to dive into the tabernacle a little bit today. But I want you to see something before that. What we see in Exodus 25 here is a theme that is from the beginning of Scripture through the end of Scripture. That God desires to live with His people. One of the things that is different about the Lord that we worship than any other major religion. One of the things that's different about the Lord that other religions proclaim to think they know about God is that the Lord that we worship, the God of the Bible, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, who has created all things, desires to live with us. Not just make visits, not just be around occasionally, not to be hands off and create the world and then step back. He wants to dwell with His people. You can see it throughout Scripture. Where's the first place we see God wants to live with His people? Garden of Eden, right? Genesis, kind of the very beginning. So in Genesis chapter 1, it starts out with God creating this amazing place. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. and this, This concept that God didn't just create the earth, He created the heavens and the earth. He created the universe. He created all that we see, all that we have, all that we know. He created all of that as a living place for us, ultimately. That's kind of extravagant, isn't it? Who did he create originally? How many people? He created Adam. And then out of Adam he created Eve. So for two people, they had the universe. How do we know God intimately talked with them? How do we know that? Where does it tell us that in Scripture? What does it say? Well, in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve mess up, It says, as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So when Adam and Eve sinned, they are forbidden from being in the place where God had set aside for them to live. We get to Exodus chapter 25. In Exodus chapter 25, God has just rescued his people. That's after he told Abram in Genesis 12, I'm going to take you and make you a people. It's after he worked through the family, the dysfunctional family of Abraham, down to Joseph that got sent to Egypt. And then 400 years passed. And then Moses comes and he rescues the people and he takes them out. And they get through the kind of the, the dangerous part. They get through the storm. They get on the other side of the Red Sea. The Egyptian army's done. And they get on the other side. And God says, now is the time that I'm going to dwell with my people. I need a place to dwell. The rest of the Old Testament is about Israel, the nation, doing good and doing bad, making good choices and bad choices. And those times when they follow the Lord and follow His commands, that He is right there with them in a visible way through armies and winds and different uh, miraculous things that happen. You get to the New Testament. There's this amazing verse in the New Testament. John chapter 1 starts out. You know John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? John 1, 14. Do you all know that one? And the Word became flesh and did what? Dwelt among us. Made His living among us. One word says, took up residence among us. Here's what's really cool, okay? This is where you have to get in the Greek a little bit. That original word is this. He tabernacled among us. So you see, even in the New Testament, God 
The reason Jesus came was for us to be able to sense the presence of God. He is attempting to come. Now, we're going to go through one more verse. We're not going to put it on the screen yet because I want to do something kind of fun with it, all right? Because it goes all the way from Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation. Anybody know how many chapters are in Revelation? You didn't know Bible quiz was happening today, did you? 22, right? And so right before the end, in Revelation chapter 21, there's this amazing verse. Don't put it up yet. Because it has been the theme verse for the last two camps our kids have been to. They got free lunch yesterday if they memorized it. So, hey, let's put it up. Revelation 21.3. This is amazing. I I just want you to see the breadth of Scripture coming together. Okay? So in Genesis, God wants to be with him in Eden. And the entire rest of the book is about God's desire and his working to get back to dwelling with his people. And it says, God's dwelling is with humanity. Now, Revelation 21.3, anybody imagine when this is talking about? It's not today. It's then. Whatever then is. Hereafter. When this is all done. It says the most glorious thing about eternity is God is living with his people. And he will live with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. In some ways, the entire Bible is a story of God's attempt to regain what he created in Eden. And that's dwelling with his people. And that's why this tabernacle is such an important thing. Now, there's a tent up on the stage. And I want you to, to know that th- this is a large tent, right? It fits, according to Kevin Steelman, my tent um, master that put it up today, it fits two queen beds in there. So for a family of four, you get real close, right? I want you to imagine a huge tent. And this is what I want to do. I want to walk through. Because it says, I want them to build me a tabernacle and I may dwell with them. I want to walk through what the tabernacle experience would have been like. Because here's what I want you to understand. We've been talking over this last few weeks about old-time religion, worship in the Old Testament. This is the first organized religious service that is proclaimed. This is the first time God says, this is how you worship me. And what I want you to see is the goal of worship. All right, So we're going to walk from one end to the other of what it would have been like. Now, I want us to realize that most of us, this is going to be a several step process. Most of us would barely get through step one. Only priests went further. The first area would have been out here. It would have been called just a general court. It would have been a gathering area. It kind of would have been like uh, the area where you waited before you went in to worship, if you will. It's kind of like the foyer on Sunday morning at 1040 when we've started at 1030, right? Right? It's kind of like out there, right? Just gathered around. Oh, it's time. Wow. They played four songs. I guess they've gotten started now. All right. I'm not talking to you unless you need to be talked to. All right. So just a gathering area, okay? And the first thing you would come to would have been a huge brazen altar. It would have looked in some ways like a huge fire pit. Now what would you imagine would happen at the brazen altar fire pit? Sacrifice, right? Here's the thing. I told my father, my father, we've had a week of birthdays here in our family. Ava turned one on Tuesday. Luke turned seven on Thursday. Uh, my father-in-law turned something on Saturday. Right? 
And I was telling him, we were, all, we were celebrating birthdays last weekend. I told him, he said, what are you preaching on? That's the thing. When preachers get together, we talk, what are you preaching on? You know, we just talk about it. So I told him what I was doing. He goes, you are nuts. I said, what do you mean? He goes, how are you talking about all that stuff in one sermon? I said, I don't know. We're just doing it. We're here for a couple hours, all right? And as I was studying this week, I thought, man, I wish we could just stop right here. What's the first act anybody did before they ever thought about approaching God? They sacrificed. What for? Just to have an animal there? What's this sacrifice for here? It's our sins. The first act of worship is confession. You can't go any farther until you get that done. Now the truth is, most of us are completely foreign to what would happen here. Now, some of you aren't. Some of you grew up in a generation when you grew up on a farm. And you've actually seen animals killed or participated in killing animals more than stomping on a bug or accidentally hitting something with your car. Right? And so there would be an altar here. There would be horns. And horns were always symbols of power. And that horn is where they would tie up their livestock while they killed it, drained the blood, and put it on the altar. Now, we have no idea how important that livestock was to them as they were doing it. I mean, they're talking about giving away food source of all kinds. Days, weeks, months of food source that they are giving to the Lord because of the sin that they have done. There was no way, because of this mental picture, because of the visual thing that God did in the tabernacle. Now, understand, this was God's object lesson to the Israelites for 500 years, from Moses through David, of what it meant to worship. And it was unmistakable to them that they had to confess and sacrifice for their own sins before they could ever move any further. In fact, people that weren't priests, that's all they did. And I wonder how many times we walk into worship on a Sunday morning having not thought a lick about the sin in our life. Having not considered the way that we have offended the Lord in the last few days. We walk in and we sing songs and we have a good time and we pray and we have all that, but we haven't had any kind of time of dealing with the problems in our own lives and laying them before the Lord of our own failings. And as a result, we never get any further than the outer court of gathering. Once they got past that, the priest took it from there. Next step was a basin of water. The basin of water was symbolic for a couple of things, but one of the things that is kind of neat to think about is the first time a priest ever went into service, the first time he ever did anything in the temple, he had to go to that basin of water and he had to have his entire body washed and clean. Symbolically showing that he was being cleansed before entering into the temple. Physically being cleaned before he goes into the temple. It is a picture in some ways of our own baptism that when we begin to follow the Lord that we immerse ourselves in water. It's the Baptist version of baptism, right? Complete immersion in water saying we are new and it's a new step. And then after that, every time a priest would come and go into the tent, he would first wash his hands, get everything clean, and get everything taken care of to be clean as he entered. Once you went inside the tent, There would have been some furniture inside the tent that would have been reminders to the people about what was happening. And somewhere over in this area would have been some candles. 
And the candles, this is going to be amazing for the video, right? Be some candles. Now, what are the candles for? What do they represent? Why would you need candles in there? Why do you need candles inside of a room? Light. There you go. Right. There's a practical reason for the candles. They brought light. It's a tent. It gets dark in there. Okay. So they need light so they can see what they're doing. They're kind of doing important stuff in there. But it also had further symbolism because there were seven on there. You get to the seven lampstands in the book of Revelation. They're symbolic throughout Scripture, that perfect number. There's one in the center that has significance as the light of the world, Jesus Christ. But it also illuminated what they were doing. And the point was that once you move past confession, you get into being washed and cleansed, and you begin to follow the Lord, He illuminates your path. He takes care of what's coming in for you. And there's this interesting thing because when you move from that to the next thing, which would have been a table of bread, that Scripture teaches that He illuminates us so that we can have fellowship with Him. And the bread, which would have been 12 loaves. Why 12 loaves of bread? 12 tribes of Israel, right? So 12 loaves of bread, 12 tribes of Israel that would have been there. And bread represented fellowship, meal, time together. It would have shown God's presence. It would actually call it the presence bread or the bread of faces. You know why they call it the bread of faces? What's the most intimate way you can spend time with someone? Face to face, right? Not FaceTime to FaceTime. Right? Face to face. In person. And the bread symbolized that you were at the point where God is interacting with His people. The tallest element there would have been the next thing, which would have been an altar of incense. What's interesting is, this isn't like incense you go down and buy at the store and burn in your room, right? This was a special compound that they made up to represent the incense of the praying saints of God. And as it rose, it would have made a smell throughout the camp, reminding people to go to the Lord in prayer. You ever been somewhere where a smell just kind of permeates the room? I'm not going to ask those that have been to camp especially in guys' cabins, all right? We went, we went out on the lake the other day and got out there, and, they, and the boys decided they wanted to fish. And we were out with the Steelmans, and Kevin found, tucked away in there, some uh, uh, chicken livers that had been opened and left open for a few days. They, they, we had, he had, you know, rolled them up. And he took that out, and I was like, which one of our kids just... Went to the restroom, and how are we going to take care of that? And every time, and we put it in the water, catfish immediately got it. But I don't know why we went there. All right. The smell permeated everywhere. The rising incense smell would have reminded the people to come before the Lord. All right. So that was kind of there. All the way in the back was a special piece of furniture. Anybody know what that is? What's the farthest in? The holy of the holies. What's sitting back there? What's Indiana Jones going after? Right? The Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was this amazing piece of furniture that reminded them of all that God is and is doing. One of the interesting things about several of the pieces of furniture all the way through is that they are made of two materials put together, wood and gold. There are a lot of people that think the reason that they're made of wood and gold is because they symbolize the earth and divinity, humanity and deity together. 
But when you get to the Ark of the Covenant, guess what the top's made of? Just gold. And there's a place on the very top of it where there are two angels that are looking down with their wings. Y'all have seen pictures, right? Y'all know? And right in the center is what they call the mercy seat. I mean, the mercy seat is where one time a year, one priest would go into the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice there for the sins of the entire nation. From the outer court to a confession and sacrifice for the sins in our lives to a cleansing. By the way, I have to mention this. Do you know what else was at the bowl, the basin of water? Mirrors. To be able to wash effectively, but also to be reminded of who you are before you enter. You go in and you're illuminated by the presence of the Lord. You're reminded of His fellowship and sustaining of you. You offer prayers of intercession to others. And one time a year, one person got to go into the presence of God at the Ark of the Covenant. Here's what's interesting. If you've got your Bibles open to Exodus 25, I want you to look at this. God begins to describe how he wants the temple, I mean the tabernacle made. Where does he start? What piece of furniture does he start with? The ark. Now I just walked you from the altar to the basin to the lampstands or candlesticks to the shoe bread all the way over to the incense to the ark. If you notice in scripture it goes from the ark to the bread I mean, excuse me, the ark to the incense to the bread to the candlesticks to the basin to the altar. Here's what I want you to see. God set up this entire ritual to show us how to come into his presence. But as he describes it, he reminds us that that can't even happen unless he first made a move. Someone has described the tabernacle as showing the basic story of the entire Bible, which is this. God coming to us in grace and us going to God in faith. So as we travel this direction, God has come towards us. And the picture of the tabernacle is a picture of worship where we recognize the steps that God has taken to be with us and we give praise and honor and glory to Him for what He has done. Now, think about even just the last two in the life of Jesus. You can actually go back further than that. Remember when Jesus stood in front of a group of people and said, I am the bread of life? He was referencing the shoe bread. I am the light of the world, the candlestick. You know, there's a passage of Scripture that's always kind of puzzling to people, and it comes when Jesus... When Jesus is walking and he's getting ready to start his ministry and he goes up to his cousin John the Baptist and what does he tell John to do? What does he tell John to do? Baptize him, right? Did Jesus need to be baptized? No. Why are you baptized? Because you're a sinner who needs salvation and you're showing an outward expression. At least we are. In their day it was repentance. Jesus didn't need to repent. He was completely innocent. So why was he baptized? Some people say, oh, it was an example to us. It was commanded by the Father. Yes, But part of it, I think, is he's showing us a picture of the tabernacle where he is walking through that basin on his way to us. What was the last thing on the step from God to us? The altar. 
The last step of the life of Christ on earth was crucifixion and sacrifice. So what does all that mean? Here's what it means for us. Sometimes we come in and think the purpose of worship is just to give God as much glory as possible, which is part of what we're doing. But from God's perspective, worship has an end in mind. And the purpose of worship is fellowship. Not with each other, but with Him. The purpose of worship is for us to connect to God Almighty. To have fellowship with Him and know Him and be there with Him and to understand Him. And the purpose of it is not just to see how many good songs we can sing and not to get a happy feeling inside and not to just cry when things make us cry, but to actually enter into the presence of God Almighty. That's His purpose. And all this elaborate stuff that he set up wasn't just some kind of dog and pony show to try and get us to go through motions to get there. It is necessary elements from our lives that remind us of the severity of going into the presence of God unprepared and not ready. And yet we walk in here many Sundays completely unprepared encounter the living God. In fact, If you want to know whether success has happened in worship, success in worship comes when you engage the presence of God. He set up this whole thing for them. He put a cloud over the top. This is an interesting thing. And when they were doing well and they were following the steps and they were doing what God required because He is a holy God, does have requirements for us unholy people to come into His presence, the cloud would come closer to the tent. There are other times when it would begin to lift. There are also times it would begin to move. And you know what they decided to do when it began to move? Let's pack up the tent and go, right? Why don't we do that real quick? Let's just tear down the church. Let's move it somewhere. I don't think that's going to happen, all right? The point is, they recognized the most important thing in the history of their nation and the success in their lives was the ongoing presence of the Lord. And I wonder how many times we come into worship seriously desiring to interact with the presence of the Lord. Most of us never get past step one. We never give that confession, that admittance of those things that are going on in our lives that are not pleasing to Him. And so there's no way we can go the other direction. You say, well, that's for the priest anyway. You know one of my favorite pictures in Scripture? You know, the tabernacle was replaced by the temple. And when Jesus is crucified, it's actually the second temple, not the first temple, but same kind of scenario set up. The moment Jesus is crucified, what happens in the temple? That curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, the ark, is opened, symbolizing that Christ has completed the journey And access to the Lord is available for all. And how many times have we wasted our opportunity to interact with the Lord of the universe? Let's pray together.